Will you please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5? We'll be looking at Matthew chapter 5, and these brothers have some Bibles. So if you need one, get their attention as they make their way to the back. They'll get one of those Bibles to you that is marked at the passage we'll be considering in Matthew 5. I was with my daughter Annie this past week at the doctor for her to get her sports physical since school and volleyball start all too soon. I was reminded on that visit of one of the many reasons I don't like to go to the doctor. No matter what you're there for, they always start by weighing you. Now this visit's already uh, going to involve unpleasant poking and prodding. But do we have to start it off by telling me how fat I am? But we all know that for our physical health, keeping track of progress or regress, as the case may be, is important. But did you know that it's important for our spiritual health as well? And in the passage we're going to look at today from that most famous of sermons that we call the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus provides a measure of whether we're eating a spiritually nourishing diet. We've looked at four of the eight what we call beatitudes or blessings that Jesus pronounces in this sermon. We looked at the fourth one last week, and it's actually central to all the others because the one we saw last week is the product of the first three, and it produces the next four. Now, let me remind you of what that was from last week in verse number six. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. But this hungering and thirsting for righteousness happens only for those about whom the first three blessings are true. They are people who see themselves, in verse 3, as spiritually bankrupt, poor in spirit. And as a result of that view of themselves, they mourn over their sin and that of others' sin, Verse number four. And that in turn develops within them a meekness, a humility, so that they acknowledge their spiritual deficiency and so they intensely desire to have that deficit, that spiritual deficit filled. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. This righteousness that we hunger and thirst for is, as we saw last week, conformity to the character of God. That is, we intensely desire to be like God in the way we think, and the way we talk, and in the way we act. The poor in spirit, and the mourners, and the meek, they see how far they are from this ultimate standard of God's character. And they have a holy dissatisfaction with the status quo. And it causes them to hunger and thirst for righteousness, and God promises to satisfy their desire. The last part of verse number 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. God satisfies our desire, and when he does that, it changes us. And we see that change in the next three Beatitudes, flowing out of verse number six. Verse seven, blessed are the merciful. And then verse eight, blessed are the pure in heart. And verse nine, blessed are the peacemakers. All three of these are consequences of Christian character. Christian character described in verses 3, 4, and 5. 
And they are all three characteristic of God himself, who is merciful and pure and is the ultimate peacemaker. This is because they are each the result of God satisfying our hunger and thirst for righteousness. God satisfies that thirst by making us into those things, those things being merciful people, pure in heart people, peacemaking people. And all three of those are items on the menu of God's righteousness that we hunger and thirst for. They all conform to the character of God. So this morning we're going to look at those three results of hungering and thirsting for righteousness that God produces in the lives of those who have that intense longing. Let's ask God to help us as we do. Father, we thank you for the privilege of another Lord's Day to be together as your people, to sing your praise, to give back to you, to ask you, and now to learn of you. Lord, help us to focus our minds upon what your word tells us. Help us to put aside the cares of the world that we entered this room with. We ask that your spirit would move upon our hearts and change us, conform us into the image of Jesus so that we indeed Demonstrate the righteousness that your people hunger and thirst for. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Each of these beatitudes of action, these three that we've looked at, displaying mercy and purity of heart and peacemaking, each of these attitudes of action, one commentator says, corresponds to an early beatitude of need. So the earlier beatitudes of need are in verses 3, 4, and 5. In verse 3, poor in spirit. That corresponds to our merciful approach. And then in verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, and those who mourn are people who as a result will be pure in heart. And blessed are those who are meek, and the meek will be those who are peacemakers. The poor in spirit are merciful, mourners become pure, the meek make peace. Now, I've prepared an outline for you, as we do each week. It's inserted in your program. And if you haven't already pulled that out, I encourage you to do so now so that you can follow along as we look at these three actions that result from these attitudes of need that Jesus has already told us his followers will have. And I say in that outline, first of all, that Christians see themselves... In others' misery. Christians see themselves in others' misery. Verse 7 Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. So, what is this mercy that God gives to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness? Theologians often divide the attributes or the character qualities of God into two categories those of his absolute attributes and those of his relative attributes. The absolute character qualities of God are those that he has without reference to his creation, apart from any relationship to humanity. God was truth, for example, before he created anything, including us. God has been love for all eternity. So truth and love are absolute attributes of God. But when God created humanity, his truth and love and holiness and other absolute character qualities are now displayed in relationship that is relative to mankind. And so the absolute attribute of truth becomes faithfulness in relation to his people. 
The absolute attribute of holiness becomes justice in relationship to sinners. And the absolute attribute of love becomes grace and mercy. Mercy and grace we sometimes use interchangeably, but they're not precisely the same thing. And you know that because you have passages in the Bible where both terms are are used as if they are at least somewhat different. At the beginning of two of his letters, Paul, who wrote much of our New Testament, two of those letters were written to his young protege, Timothy. And at the beginning of both of those two letters to Timothy, he says this, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice, grace, mercy, and peace. Those are then not precisely the same thing. One way to distinguish grace and mercy is this. Grace, God in his grace gives me what I do not deserve. God in his grace gives me what I do not deserve, and in his mercy, he does not give me what I do deserve. God in his grace gives me what I do not deserve, and in his mercy, he does not give me what I do deserve. And if God were not merciful, then none of us would be breathing right now. Because if God gave us what we do deserve, none of us would be here. But in His mercy, He does not give us what we do deserve. And we see it used this way in a number of places in Scripture. One of those is in reference to Lot and his family. And the Bible simply says, the Lord was merciful to Lot and his family. There's a man at the time that Jesus walked the earth 2,000 years ago, who begged the Son of God to heal his son. And he said this to Jesus, Lord, have mercy on my son. Have pity have on him in his misery, and then do for him what he does not deserve, what I do not deserve, by healing him. It is mercy that pities. It's grace that pardons. Mercy pities those in misery. Grace pardons those in sin. And the supreme example and source of God's grace and mercy is the work of God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross. James Montgomery Boyce says this about that. We cannot state the definition of mercy without thinking at once of the cross of Jesus Christ. For it's here that God acted out of grace in mercy to fallen sinful man. In fact, God's act was so complete at the cross that there's a sense in which mercy can be seen by sinful man there only. In his sinful fallen state, man could do nothing to save himself, so God stepped forward to do everything that needed to be done. Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, the former pastor of the historic 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, has written, When Jesus Christ died on the cross, all of the work of God for man's salvation passed out of the realm of prophecy and became historical fact. God has now had mercy upon us. For anyone to pray, God have mercy on me, is the equivalent of asking him to repeat the sacrifice of Christ. All the mercy that God ever will have on man, he has already had when Christ died. This is the totality of mercy. There could not be any more. And God can now act toward us in grace because he's already had all mercy upon us. The fountain is now opened and flowing, and it flows freely. And so we correctly sing, Mercy there was great 
and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty. At where? At Calvary. The Bible speaks then of this mercy that God showed us in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, profoundly in Ephesians chapter 2, where it says, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, you see this attribute of uh, his absolute characteristic of love being demonstrated in this relative attribute of his mercy because of his great love. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Now, friends, because we've experienced this mercy from God, we in turn, according to Jesus in verse 7, show mercy to others. If we do not show mercy to others, it is only because we have never asked for God's mercy for ourselves. When Jesus says in verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy, it sounds like if I do this, then I get this from God. So it's something it can sound like at first reading that I earn. But in fact, the mercy we receive is a gift from God. It's not earned, but given in response to a humble heart that sees its need of God's condescending love toward us. You see, friends, the person who is not merciful to others is a person who has never asked God for mercy himself. D.A. Carson said this rightly, The one who is not merciful is inevitably so unaware of his own state that he thinks he needs no mercy. He cannot picture himself as miserable and wretched, so how shall God be merciful toward him? He's like the Pharisee in the temple who was unmerciful toward the wretched tax collector standing over in the corner of the temple. Jesus told this story of the two men who approached the temple, one a Pharisee, a religious guy, the other a despised tax collector. And here's what Jesus says about the Pharisee, the religious guy. The Pharisee stood up and prayed, notice, about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all that I get. By contrast, the person who experience, whose experience reflects these beatitudes that Jesus has given in the first part of this sermon is conscious of his spiritual bankruptcy. He grieves over it, and he develops a humble heart, and so he hungers for righteousness. And therefore, he's merciful toward the wretched because he recognizes himself to be wretched. The Bible tells us of this kind of approach that we ought to have to ourselves that ought to issue forth in our outlook toward others a number of times. One example is in Ephesians 4, where it says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Now we are going to see in the next chapter of this sermon, chapter 6, when we get to what's called the disciples prayer that Jesus says there as you pray one of the things you should routinely pray is forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are our debtors and then Jesus goes on to say this in verse 14 of chapter 6 just turn one page over and take a look verse 14 if you do not forgive men their sins 
your Father will not forgive your sins. And likewise, Jesus is saying here, if you are not someone who demonstrates mercy to others, it is only because you have not asked for God's mercy yourself. And therefore, it's a demonstration that you are not a Christian, you are not God's child. Mercy identifies with those who are in misery, of whatever type of misery it may be, because of sin, whether it's their own sin or just the result of living in a fallen, sinful world. And so I say in your outline that Christians see themselves in others' misery, and here's why. Because we could be there. We could be where they are. Now, friends, do you believe that? Do you believe that your nature is the way Jesus says in verse 3? Spiritually bankrupt, poor, nothing to offer God. And therefore, what you are and what you have become is not because you're great, but because God has been gracious. And it's when we see ourselves that way that we can say, I could be there. And therefore, I have mercy, I have pity on those who are in misery. The great apostle asked rhetorically in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? Now notice the first word there in that rhetorical question. Of course, the answer is, there's nothing that I have that I did not receive. Everything that I am and everything that I have, I received from the hand of a gracious God. But notice he starts it out by asking, who makes you different? Not what makes you different. Who makes you different? And who is that one who makes us different? None other than our gracious God, from whose hand we have received all that we are and all that we have. If we have the humility then, because we see our own spiritual bankruptcy, because we see ourselves as poor in spirit, if we have that kind of humility, then we will take pity upon those who are in their misery because we understand we could be there. We'll move on, but is there anyone that you look at and you say, I'm better than that. I could never do that. I could never be there. If you say that about yourself, then you're failing the test that Jesus gives us here. We could be there. And secondly, I say in your outline, not only could we be there, we deserve to be there. When we see someone in misery due to sin, we should not say, look at what he or she did to themselves. Rather, we should think, look at what we've done to ourselves. Do you hear that, friends? When you see the mess that the world is in, if you have a biblical perspective, a biblical worldview, you don't look at people and say, look at them and what a mess they've made. You say, look at us and what a mess we have made because of our sin. You see, humanity has a solidarity in sin. We are all related to one another, having come from the same parents, according to the Bible, and we are all related to other in the sense that we are all sinners and we have all contributed to the mess we is in. Humanity has a solidarity in sin. 
We are equal in sin, and only because of God's mercy are we unequal in its consequences. And so when we do what's called mercy ministry, which we have a long list of things that we as a church hope to do here and use this facility that God has given us to engage in what we call mercy ministries, to help those who are entrapped in very obvious ways in the consequences of sin. When we do those mercy ministries, we always must do them in the name of Jesus, emphasizing what God has done for us. And so we don't perform those mercy ministries in any sort of a condescending way, but rather we come and say, I do this in mercy to you because God has been merciful to me. We recognize that we could be there. We recognize that we deserve to be there. When we show mercy, it often involves withholding the legitimate power to harm. It often involves the withholding of the legitimate power to hurt or to harm. That is, someone is at your mercy. And if you do not give it, if you do not grant that mercy, that person will be harmed. We have examples of this throughout Scripture. One of those is with Abraham and Lot. You remember the story of Abraham and Lot. They were together. And Lot, at one point in their travels, said, I want to take a portion of all that we have here, and I want to go my own way. And Abraham was gracious and allowed Lot to pick what do you want, which way do you want to go. He chose to go, the Bible tells us, very pointedly in the direction of Sodom. And so Lot is in Sodom with his family because of his own choosing. He had separated from his uncle Abraham, decided to go his own way, and while he's in Sodom, he and his family are taken captive and their possessions are confiscated. Now, when Abraham got word of this, what do you think he does? <laughs> what would you do? See, stupid nephew? What would we do? You made your bed. That's what many of us would do, right? But when Abraham got word, the Bible tells us he assembled an army. Shows you how much Abraham had at his disposal. And he went to battle for his nephew. It was Lot who initiated their split. Abraham had given Lot first choice of the land. Lot had hurt Abraham, and now Abraham was in a position to hurt Lot. But instead, he chose mercy. Another example is Joseph and his brothers in Genesis chapter 30, chapters 39 through 50. Many of you know the story that Joseph's brothers, in great treachery, sold him into slavery, assumed that he had been uh, killed in all likelihood at some point. They had long forgotten about him, and God, through a series of providential circumstances, brought Joseph into a powerful position in the most powerful nation in the world, Egypt. And through another series of circumstances, he led those very same brothers to Egypt to ask for food because a famine had occurred in their own land in Israel. And when they went to Egypt, they were directed to the one who was in charge of the food and the wealth of Egypt, none other than Joseph himself. And when they stood before Joseph, at first they didn't recognize him. Joseph ultimately recognized them, identified himself to them. They had hurt Joseph. And now Joseph is in a position to hurt them, but instead he chose mercy. 
I recall many years ago a situation in which a man in a church, not our church, a man who was employed at a financial institution used his position to look up unauthorized information about his church. You say, why would anybody do that? I mean, why wouldn't they just go and ask some questions and find out if they had any suspicions or concerns? Friends, let me tell you something. When people get things in their mind that are negative about others, then in their mind, those others can do no right. And then they develop all sorts of conspiracy theories. I've seen this happen. This happened in the life of this man. So much so that he used his position at a financial institution to look up unauthorized information about his church. This man was apparently convinced the church was doing something untoward with the finances. He was seeking to prove it. The church found out through a series of circumstances that could only be described as divine intervention. The church contacted his superiors at the financial institution. He was confronted by his employer, and his very career was in jeopardy. Not just his job at that institution, his entire career in finance. He met with the leadership team of that church, and he pled for mercy. The good men on that board granted it. And to my knowledge, that issue has never been raised another time to that man. And, to my knowledge, to this day, he's a faithful and serving member in that church. He had sought to hurt those people. And they were in a position to hurt him. But they chose mercy instead. He was literally at their mercy. And what they did for him was undeserved, but it was born out of their Christian character. They were treating him like Christ has treated them. Sometimes that power that we have in whether or not we show mercy to another is in simply saying no, refusing to act. An individual may have put themselves in difficulty and they come to you for aid. They have no claim on your generosity and therefore are at your mercy. Here's what Christians do. Christians say yes whenever they can and whenever it is in the best interests of the one seeking help. And that is, friends, how you can balance how you help family members, how you help co-workers, how you help people who will put themselves in very difficult situations through choices of their own. And they come to you for help. You want to help because you're a Christian, because you've been shown mercy, you want to show mercy. But you also want that mercy to be in the best interest of that individual because this mercy is an expression of God's love and love is this, doing what's in the best interest of another. So you do not simply aid and abet, they're going in the wrong direction. And we do all of this because we know that we're no better. We understand our own spiritual bankruptcy and so we show mercy to others. And so I say in your outline, Christians see themselves in others' misery. Secondly, Christians see God's displeasure in their sin. Christians see God's displeasure in their sin. Verse 8, blessed are the pure. But what is it that motivates these people 
to maintain a purity about themselves. They mourn over their sin, verse 4, and they fear the displeasure of the God who has been so merciful to them. You say, really? Is God ever displeased with his own children? You know, there's a teaching out there that says no. There's a teaching out there that says, because you're in Christ, God could never be displeased with you. Nonsense. Here's what the Bible says of David when David, a man after God's own heart, sinned. Here's what it says. The thing David had done displeased the Lord. The Bible says in a passage that speaks of all of us, Christians one day standing before what's called the judgment seat of Christ to receive what has been done, the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. It says in that passage this, we make it our goal to please Him. You see, friends, it is possible for God's children to displease Him. The Greek word that's translated pure in verse 8 had two, has two basic meanings. The first is this, clean, and the other is unmixed, clean and unmixed. In fact, we get our English word cathartic from the Greek word that's translated pure in this verse. One commentator says a cathartic is an agent used by a medical doctor for cleansing the physical body. A psychiatrist also uses catharsis on the emotional level to cleanse the patient of hostility and other destructive attitudes. There's also a spiritual catharsis, a cleansing of the inner man. And so the Bible speaks of purifying their hearts by faith and says the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. So one meaning of this word pure is to be clean or cleansed, but there's a second meaning as well. It means being unmixed. Gold with the dross removed is pure gold. Wheat with the chaff removed is pure wheat. And the idea is that of integrity, singleness of heart, as opposed to being duplicitous, having a double heart, a divided heart. When God cleanses a sinner and makes him his child, he does more than merely wash away his sin. He puts within him a new heart that wants to focus completely, wholly on God, undivided, pure. And that's why the prophet Jeremiah said this. I will give them singleness of heart and action so that they will always fear me. The pure in heart. Now, how do we maintain this purity of heart, this, this cleansing before God, and this unmixed devotion to God in the day-to-day -day struggle with sin? Well, one way is what I have for you in your outline. We know and are ever aware of our weaknesses. We know our weaknesses. We know things about ourselves physically, like allergies and reactions to certain kinds of foods, and so we, in turn, avoid those things if we can. And we each have different temptations that can defile our hearts, that is, make us unclean, and draw us away from exclusive loyalty to the Lord, give us a divided heart. We each have different temptations that result in those things. And knowing what those are, we avoid them at all costs because we see how very evil they are. And it's not, friends, that I just set up barriers to avoid the bad thing. 
It's that I want to avoid any obstacles as I pursue the best thing, and that is God's character, God's righteousness. Just as in verse 7, the action of mercy corresponds to being poor in spirit in verse 3. This beatitude of action, being pure, maps to the internal disposition of verse 4, that we mourn for sin. If you're not pure, if you're not clean in your thinking, if you're not clean in your speech, if you're not clean in your behavior, if you're not pure, if you're not completely devoted to God, then ask yourself whether or not you are mourning for sin. If you are not, the answer to that is no. That is, do you see anything that defiles you and dethrones God as first priority, and do you see it as, aw- as very awful as it really is? And do you mourn for it? And so we know our weaknesses, and then in turn, I say secondly, we guard our hearts. We know our weaknesses, and knowing what those are, we guard our hearts. Jesus says in verse 8, blessed are the pure, notice, in heart. And in the Bible, the heart is the control center of the entire person. That's why Proverbs chapter 4 says famously, above all, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. We guard against the distractions that put other things before the Lord and what is important to Him and keep those things from being most important to us. Paul wrote again to his protege Timothy and he said this, No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Friends, what we do is we guard our hearts as we guard against distractions. Hear this. Even good things, but lesser things. Good, but lesser things that are put before the Lord and His mission, they keep us from being divided in our loyalty. And we also guard against the defilement of our hearts by sinful pollutants. All kinds of application could be made here, right? But let me make one to a part of our audience. Men, we men. Men, you should see a skull and crossbones when you look at that airbrushed image on the screen on your computer. You should see it as the evil that it is. You should mourn over it. And you should remove it from your presence immediately, lest you defile your heart. And not be pure. Tim Challies has written a book called Sexual Detox, a guide for guys who are sick of porn. He says this, few Christian men, notice Christian men, few Christian men indulge in porn without realizing they need to quit. Every Christian guy who looks at porn wants to stop. But many of us want to stop just a little bit less than we want to keep going. The problem isn't knowledge, it's desire and ability. So sin prevails. Here's a promise, he says. You'll never stop until you begin to see the monstrous nature of the sin you're committing. You'll never stop until the sin is more horrifying to you than the commission of the sin is enjoyable. 
You'll need to hate that sin before you can find freedom from it. And that means you need more grace. You need to cry out to be changed and to see the monstrous nature of this sin. And you will only do that if you see your sin and have the internal reaction of verse 4 such that you mourn over your sin. Verse 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Hebrews chapter 12 says this, Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And there's this famous passage that many of you know, but perhaps have never thought about, because when you think about it, it can be a little confusing. It's in 1 John chapter 3. It says this, We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Now, those are, that passage is like a lot of passages in the Bible. You read it. It sounds poetic, but you don't actually think about what it means. We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. How, what's the connection between us being like Him because we see Him? Well, here's the connection. You can't see Him unless you're like Him. You can't see Him in His glorified state unless you've been made like Him. And so we will be like Him because we are going to see Him as He is in His glorified state. And the only way for that to happen is for us to be completely changed in the holy people that God is making us to. Now that's in the future. The next verse, that's verse 2. You see that? That's verse 2. Verse 3 says this about the here and now. Everyone who has this hope in him, this hope in the future, purifies himself now just as he is pure. And so, friends, Christians see themselves in others' misery, Jesus says in verse 7. And they see God's displeasure in their sin, verse number 8. And lastly, Christians see others' good in their relationships. Christians see others' good in their relationships. Christians see the good of others that God has brought into their circle of influence. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. Peacemaker, then, can only be one who makes peace, who initiates peace, if they are first motivated by the good of the other party rather than their own rights. Now, we do this, first of all, because, I say in your outline, we have been reconciled. Christians see others good in their relationships, and they do that because they're motivated by the fact that we have been reconciled to God. Romans 5 says this, Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We've been reconciled. Peace has been made between us, the sinner, the rebel, and God, the Holy One. And who initiated this peace? God Himself. James White says this, The relationship between justification and that is being declared righteous before God because of the 
perfect life and death of the Lord Jesus. The relationship between justification and having peace is clear because, this verse says, we have been justified through faith as an action in the past. We now have, as a present possession, peace with God. And he says there can be no doubt what lies behind Paul's use of the term peace in this passage. The Hebrew who is steeped in Scripture knew full well the meaning of the word, and some of you know at least one Hebrew word, the word shalom. It does not refer merely to a cessation of hostilities, though it surely means this as well. And such is true of justification, for the reason for hostility is removed in the work of Christ. But it's not just a temporary ceasefire. The term shalom would not refer to a situation where two armed forces face each other across a border, ready for conflict, but not yet at war. Shalom, he says, refers to a fullness of peace, a wellness of relationship. It has a strong positive element. Those systems that proclaim a man-centered scheme of justification cannot explain the richness of this word. They cannot provide peace because a relationship that finds its source and origin in the actions of imperfect sinners will always be imperfect itself. Only the gospel of Christ which says that Christ is our all in all, that Christ is the powerful Savior, that Christ is able to save completely, can provide for true peace. And those who have come to God through Christ have been reconciled. And having been reconciled, lastly in your outline, we seek to be reconciled. We've been reconciled to God And now we seek to be reconciled to others. Now notice I say we seek to be. We may not be successful. (laughs) You know that reconciliation requires the cooperation of both parties. I've had occasion to approach church members over the years, church members here, even recently, and say things like, it appears to me there's something between us We're not on the same page. And sometimes you get a good response. Other times there's no willingness on the other side. And all you can do is seek to be reconciled. You cannot force another party, right? And that's why Romans chapter 12 and verse 18 says this. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Living at peace does not mean you sweep everything under the rug. If there is a problem between you and a brother or sister, you go to them. You seek to have it reconciled. But that will only happen if both parties cooperate. Now, some of you are feeling pretty good at this point because you can't think of anyone in the church with whom you need to be reconciled. But here's the problem. For some of you, it's because you don't know anyone. And that's because you don't interact with anyone. You see, all of this stuff where Jesus talks about being a peacemaker (laughs) assumes you're in the mix. It assumes you're involved with people such that conflict can and does occur. And therefore, this peacemaking initiative needs to take place. You'll be able to serve as a peacemaker only if you are the meek person of verse 5. Because the humble, meek person does not need to be known as right even when he is right. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus says in verse 9, for they will be called children of God. Now when it says children of God, 
That's literally the phrase, sons of God. Now, why does that matter? Here's why. One scholar says this, In Jewish thought, son often bears the meaning partaker of the character of. If someone calls you, he says, the son of a dog, it's not an aspersion on your parents, it's an aspersion on you. It's saying you partake of the character of a dog. Son of and children of are both part of a filial relationship, but son of has more of an emphasis on character than position. That's why Jesus is called the Son of Man, because he partakes of the character of humanity, and the Son of God, because he has the full character of God. And they shall be called the peacemakers, the sons of God. They partake of the character, the peacemaking character of God. I have a take-home truth for you at the bottom of your outline. Here's what Jesus is telling us in these three Beatitudes that flow out of this hungering and thirsting for righteousness. That Christians reflect what they have received. Christians are to reflect what they have received. Now, if you guys can stay awake for about three more minutes... I could end here, but I want to end on a more positive note. Because I began by saying I hate that the doctor starts every visit by telling me how fat I am. And now after all of this, you may be thinking, thanks, Brown. I come to church and I end up feeling like a big fat sack of sin. Well, let me offer some hope for change for each of us into the merciful and pure and peacemaking people that Jesus says his followers will be. I want to give you some biblical guidelines that may be helpful to you in developing your walk of becoming like Christ. And these guidelines can throw us a rope to pull us up in order to help us overcome sin and temptation. The first is, is this, that we walk by the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, and here's the good news with that. If you've been saved, you have God's Spirit. And the Bible says then we walk by the Spirit. So you, as a child of God, have His Spirit and will walk by His Spirit. But then secondly, obeying His commands is not burdensome. You have his spirit, which abides with you and will motivate you. And then secondly, obeying God's commands is not burdensome. If you love God, his commands will not be burdensome. And if you're his child, you do love him. And so the Bible says in 1 John 5, this is love for God to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. That's what the Bible says. Because you're born of God, you will become like God and triumph over the world, John says. According to him, believers will obey commands and miraculously they will not be burdensome. We will enjoy and love following God's commands. Now why is that? It's because when you love somebody, it's easy to serve that person. Doting parents love to help their children. A loving husband enjoys assisting his wife. When you love God, obeying commands is a joy. And so as a result then, you have his spirit that motivates you. His commands are not burdensome, and therefore you can carry out the two commands on which hang all the rest of the Bible's commands. 
love God and love others. You see, all of these commands in the Bible, over and over again, but you remember that Jesus was asked, which is the greatest commandment in all the law? And he said, love the Lord your God. This is the first and greatest commandment, to love your neighbor like as yourself. This is the second great commandment. And on these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. And Paul, who wrote the book of Romans, picks up on Jesus' teaching on love and he explains how to live among one another in the world. He says this, Do not owe anyone anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments do not commit adultery, murder, steal, covet, Whatever other commandment are all summed up by this, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to his neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. And so to summarize, friends, you have God's Spirit, and He leads you to obey God's commands. And this is why these commands are not burdensome to us. They, in fact, become second nature to you because they're simply an expression of loving God and others. And so consider now the sin that dominates you. Do you overcome it by making a list of more rules for yourself? You overcome it by learning to love God more purely and more deeply. And His Spirit moves you to ask Him for that very thing, and that is a request that He is bound by His own character to grant. God, help me to love you more than my sin. We're going to bow. And as we do, I pray that some that name the name of Jesus will do business with God. And I pray that any who came into this room without a relationship with God through Jesus will come to him in this sacred moment as we bow our heads. Now, how do you do that? On the screen, we tell you. You realize that you're a sinner. You recognize that Christ died for your sin. You repent of your sin. God, I'm going to go your way, not my way. And then you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. You bow before Him as your Lord by from your heart to Him, acknowledging your sin, acknowledging Him as the Savior from your sin, and giving your life to Him. Let's bow together. Lord Jesus, our God, what a marvelous thing it would have been for us to have the privilege to sit at a hillside and to hear you speak with such authority, such brevity, but such power. And Jesus, you have laid out for us this logical progression of what it means to have the attitudes that reflect a child of God, a Christian, a follower of yours, and then the actions that flow out of that. And it gives us a barometer, a measure for us to see whether or not we are indeed behaving and thinking and talking in ways that befit those who name your name. Thank you for these powerful words. We thank you for your spirit that works on our hearts so that we are convicted and so that we are chided and we are brought back to you as we wander. I pray that that is happening now in the hearts of your people. And Lord, I pray for anyone who entered this room without a relationship with you through Jesus Christ. I pray that right now your spirit is moving on their hearts and drawing them out of the world and to yourself that you are showing to them the mercy that you have shown to me, a mercy that I did not deserve, a mercy that I currently do not deserve and will never deserve. But thanks be to you, I'm not consumed by your anger for sin because Jesus has paid it all and all to him I owe. 
Lord, I ask you to save those who now can become transformed, lips that praise you, and lives that glorify you. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.